You'll be turning in your Bible to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Hebrews 10. As you're doing so, I wanted to take a moment to thank our young people for leading us in worship today. My brothers and sisters, you did a fine job. And I, I, I'm not sure that everybody comprehends how intimidating it is to get up here and do something like that. Uh, I will testify that um, standing up and preaching has never rendered the same level of stress and fear in me as trying to lead in music and worship. That project will reduce me to a blubbering idiot. Um, now, some of you say that's not too much of a reduction, and it's rude of you to think that. <laughs> but I say to you, seriously, uh, guys, thank you for leading us today, and it is deeply appreciated. Uh, if you're wondering, Pastor Willis had some vacation left, and they're visiting family. And uh, Pastor Nathan, his home church, First Baptist Ozark, was having a special event today. Joel Hayworth, with whom uh, Nathan is dear friends, Joel came out of that church and pastors First Baptist Salem, and Joel was coming to preach there at Ozark today, and they'd asked Nathan if he could work it out to come and lead music for those two young men whose ministry began there, their learning and growth, and so I was glad to give him the freedom to do that. So they are ministering in another place today, and we rejoice for the Lord allowing them to have that time together. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll begin reading at verse 19 and take in through verse 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But, by righteous, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And so now, our Father, we ask, here this final day of 2023, as we are allowed to gather in worship, that you would do as you have promised, attend the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, and may it grant to us confidence and boldness and may we rejoice in all of your goodness to us now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. There is a wonderful logic and flow of Scripture. When you read the text, you find that movement. It's one of the things that I think attests to the inspiration of the work of the Spirit in giving us the Scripture. Uh, it's a warning to us that we ought to be careful about lifting verses out of their context. It's not that there aren't some glorious gems that can stand alone in some sense and minister to us, but we have to be very careful lest we take a verse and make it mean something it never meant to mean. Even if it's a good thing, it's possible to get the right teaching but get it from the wrong verse, if that makes sense. And so today, some of you are looking at this, those familiar, and saying, okay, pastor, 20 verses. You do know that we're not going to want to be here till midnight. Please do not be alarmed yet. I want you to follow what the author's doing here. The text, I truly believe, is about confidence. You see the word at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, you see it again at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And the word confidence here seems very much related to faith and faithfulness. 
The text is about the confidence that only God can give. It is about, by faith, living out the confidence that God gives us. This confidence, this boldness, gives us extraordinary liberty, both in our relationship to the Lord, our relationship to one another, and even our relationship to a hostile world. When the Roman emperor brings Chrysostom before him and threatens him with banishment if he remains a Christian, here was Chrysostom, the early church father. Here's his response. You cannot banish me from this world, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I'll take away your treasures. No, you can't, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart's there. But I'll drive you away from man. You'll not have a friend left. No, you can't. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. Now, bear in mind, folks, he's saying that to an emperor who had the authority to end his life. From whence comes such confidence? From whence comes such boldness? The author here in the first three verses tells us what we have. Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, the new and living way opened through the curtain, that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he tells us what to do. Let us draw near. You see, and this I think is so essential. Now we're going to do a little exercise here. Are you ready? This is, this is called congregational involvement. You're a Baptist. This not, ought not bother you. If you're not a Baptist, you may be very uncomfortable right now. And if the Baptist next to you looks uncomfortable, it's just because they're a little backslid. It'll be fine. <laughs> Tell the person next to you, God loves you just the way you are. Trust me. All right. Now tell them God loves you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> hmm. Now, see, we hear that former part all the time, right? God loves you just the way you are. Truth. You don't have to reform your life for God to love you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? But that's not the end of the story. There is an outcome to that great love. And isn't it intriguing? We always seem surprised, alarmed, disturbed by suffering and difficulties, and we seem at a loss for how to live. Over and over again as Christians, how often do we catch ourselves saying, I just don't understand why the Lord would let that happen. I just don't understand why the Lord let that happen to me, happen to them, happen at all. Oh, we are just inveterate whiners. We're good at it. We seem to lose sight 
that we are to live in Christian confidence, faithfully confident, and the things around us to echo Chrysostom. What is it that you're going to take from me? What is it that I can lose? Okay, first consideration. Let's call this the actions of a confident faith. Now, having told us what we have, verses 19, 20, 21, he then moves on to talking to us about action. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. My friend, if you're not his, this is suicide. To draw near to the absolutely thrice holy God is suicidal. There is a reason that our original parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden after the fall, no longer run toward God, no longer move toward God, when God in some way makes his presence known and comes to them, they hide from him. That is an instinct that is not necessarily a bad instinct because we recognize our sinfulness makes it so that being in the presence of a holy God is dangerous. What is it that may happen? But if we are in Christ, this is no longer suicidal. When he says, let us draw near, and before that he talks about the entrance we gain, and he talks about the veil, the curtain, and the curtain is his own body. He does for us in dying for us. One of the results of God saving you is that you will long to draw near. Here's an action of confident faith, confident communication. You want to draw near to God. What a powerful motivation in prayer. See, some of you, I think you struggle over the issue of prayer because you've reduced prayer to some version of a shopping list, a checklist of the things you want, the things you need, the things that you think must happen and you're desperate for God to do it. And you've missed that the origin of prayer is not a shopping list of the things I want from God or think that I need from God. It is that I can actually draw near to God. There is a personal relationship. How are we called to draw near? Let us draw near with a true or sincere heart. The word here implies honesty and purity with a clear conscience or a clean conscience. He wants us to come without hesitation or the misery of guilt. Our bodies washed with pure water, a reference probably to baptism, that our entry here, that imagery that we are made pure with this full assurance of faith, believing what he has promised Going to him. My friends, part of this confidence is the action of going to the Lord. And hear me when I say this. Your first question ought not be, what am I going to say? First question ought to be, to whom am I going? 
And if I go into his presence, the words will come. What needs to be said will come. But oh, my friend, here's confidence. You may draw near to God. Not the God made up by our culture. Not the cosmic Santa Claus that so many believe God to be. Or somehow a bumbling, fumbling fool. Or usually just a magnified version of me. I'm always impressed with folks. Well, you Christians, I don't like your view of God. I like this view of God. Well, of course you like that view of God. He's just a bigger version of you. And your biggest problem there, my friend, is you have way too high an opinion of yourself. So the first action of confident faith would be confident communication. It'd also be a confident confession. Look at that 23rd verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on to what you know and what you confess. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to your God. You have been gripped, apprehended by the Lord. Then hold on to how you have been apprehended. Paul will say in Philippians 3rd chapter, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, and I love this next phrase, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We have been grasped, and we ought to confess this glorious reality. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And somebody said, well, what if I can't? What if I fall? What if I fail? What if I'm weak? Oh, no. Not about you. He who promised is faithful. Christian, you can trust him because he's trustworthy. You can hold your hope because he holds you. You, you can do any of these things because he is bigger than anything you'll face. He's even bigger than your failure. He will keep his promise. Remind yourself of those great truths. The reason we talk to you so often, my friends, is about what you believe. Is because not, not to fill your head with this esoteric knowledge. It is rather that when you have this faith living vigorously within you, anchored to honest, straightforward truths, it is what gives life and power and confidence to your living. Doctrine is never to be separated from life, nor life from doctrine. Doctrine shouts to you, this is true. And from that, then you can live. Anybody besides me labored at some time in your Christian life under a wrong-headed, mistaken notion? Anybody? Okay, there's half a dozen of us. <laughs> I know there's more than that. It, it struck me this morning as I'm worshiping my conversion, my, my coming to faith in Christ was sometime between Christmas and New Year's when I was 15. 
and I don't know any more than that. I just know it was somewhere along in there. And I remember one of the first things the Lord began to work in me was this idea of joy. And I think part of it is because I just didn't smell a whole lot of joy in the church I was in. I, I, I sniffed a lot of duty, a lot of guilt, a lot of misery. Had that aroma all the time. Do, do, do. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that. Be good, be good, be good, be good. And when you can't be good, it's miserable. And so joy became a dominant thought. And as we were singing this morning, there was in my heart this thanksgiving. And it's like, you know, it's one of those things you look back and say, okay, I understand why there wasn't a whole lot of joy. Unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of truth. There were some mistaken ideas. And whenever you think it's all up to you to keep you saved, how in the world could you ever be happy? How in the world could you have any joy if it's up to you to stay saved? Folks, if it's up to me to stay saved, I'm depressed. I'm absolutely miserably living. It's just like, oh my word, I'm done. Confident. Confident in confession. You can trust him. Confident about your community. I, you read that verse 24. Let's consider how to stir up one another with gossip. Let's stir one another up with judgmental opinions. Let's stir one another up about politics. Yay! Some of you are more excited about the election next year than you are Jesus. Shame on you. The king reigns no matter who's elected. The king reigns no matter who's elected. Some of you don't believe that, I don't think. Let's stir one another up in what way? To love and good works. Never separated to love and good works. The word here for stir up, the King James translates it, let's provoke one another. Now some of you are good at provocation. But that's not the idea here. Uh, the original word is the word we get paroxysm. And I know some of you used paroxysm this last week, right, in a sentence. What's a paroxysm? It's a sudden and violent emotion. Now, the idea here is that you and I are to stir each other up to good works. We are to be strong encouragement, not running somebody else's life, not a judgment, but an encouragement. A big part of this, then, is that we have to be together for that to happen. Let us consider how do we stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together. You know, folks, it's really hard to encourage people when you're never around them. I know that's profound. And you thought there wasn't going to be anything profound in this sermon, and there it is. You can't encourage somebody if you're never around them. We are together. I love this. Ken Hughes put it this way. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. 
You also don't have to go home to be married. But in both cases, you're going to have a rotten relationship. Gathering. And not just gathering. Oh, I'm going to meddle. That's all right. You'll live. Here's a couple of thoughts. How about you consider showing up early? Now, I know it's Boulevard. And we joke about Boulevard time which seems to be 10 to 15 minutes after everything gets started for some. I'm not picking on you, folks. I've been late myself. But does it occur to us that maybe if we arrived earlier, we might have a chance to visit with somebody and encourage one another and spur one another on to good works? How about staying a little longer? I'm always fascinated. Well, I don't know anybody at church. Well, did you get there early? Well, no. Did you stay after? Well, no, I wanted to go get dinner. Then whose fault is it you don't know anybody? Hmm. I know. How meddlesome. My friend, here's the problem. Too many of you come looking for a blessing rather than hoping to be a blessing. You're wanting to get rather than wanting to give. I'm just going to be upfront with you. If you're going to show up to get, God have mercy on all of us. We gather to worship for the word, for fellowship. We should encourage one another. You never know the good you might do. I read this about the journalist Robert Maynard. He tells this story some years ago. He was a young boy, he was walking to school. And he came upon an irresistible temptation. Uh, In front of him was a freshly finished section of concrete sidewalk. Just couldn't take it. So he began scratching his name into it. And suddenly he was aware that standing over him with a garbage lid in one hand uh, was the biggest stonemason he had ever seen in his life. He was a huge fellow. Maynard tried to run, but the big man grabbed him (laughs) and shouted, Why are you trying to spoil my work? Maynard remembers babbling something about just wanting to put his name on the ground. And a remarkable thing happened. The, The mason released him. His voice softened. What's your name, son? Robert Maynard. Well, Robert Maynard... The sidewalk is not the place for your name. If you want your name on something, go to school, work hard, become a lawyer, hang your shingle out for all the world to see. And uh, I know some of you said, become a lawyer. Let me finish. <laughs> Tears came to Maynard's eyes, but the mason wasn't finished. What do you want to be when you grow up? A writer, I think. Now the mason's voice burst forth in tones that could be heard all over the schoolyard. A writer. A writer. Be a writer. Be a real writer. Have your name on books, not on this sidewalk. Maynard crossed the street, paused to look back. The mason was on his knees repairing the damage, and he looked up and saw the boy watching and repeated, Be a writer. Now, you say, All right, that's fun. I, you know, it'd be lovely if the Lord would send somebody to yell at me so I'd know what I'm supposed to be. That, you're, you're really missing the point, right? 
I've got a spouse that does that. Uh, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you and I have a calling, and it ought to be to encourage one another in the faith. We don't all live it exactly the same way. We don't all have the same skills. We don't have the same callings or giftings. But we ought to encourage one another in the faith. Encourage one another to pursue what is right before the Lord. Encourage one another in love and good works. So, there you go. Some actions of a confident faith. But with that also comes a warning about a failing faith. Verses 26 to 31. If you notice, the author of Hebrews is not afraid to warn us and to warn us repeatedly. If it was bad on the part of the Israelites, delivered from Egypt, fed in the wilderness, watered in the desert, that they rejected the Lord and his kindness, and you'd die without mercy, here's the comparison. How much worse if you reject the Son of God? If that got you killed without mercy, what do you think going to happen if you reject the gospel message? So what is the sin to which he refers here? How much worse punishment, verse 29, will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the Spirit of grace. I don't believe that this is simply a lost person rejecting the gospel, although the text is very clear about that. My friend, if you don't know Jesus, you will one day stand before God and give an account of yourself as to how you could sit under the preaching of good news that if you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You have heard that from gospel preachers and a gospel preacher this morning. There is an escape from hell and destruction his name is Jesus. But I don't think that's what he's referring to here. I don't even think this is about a believer sinning, either intentionally or unintentionally. In fact, John Gill, the old Baptist pastor and theologian, his body of divinity said this, this is not to be understood of common infirmities, or of grosser sins, which may be voluntarily committed by the saints after regeneration, as were by Lot, David, and others, but of denial of that great and fundamental truth of the gospel, the atonement of sin by the blood, sacrifice, and death of Christ, after a man has known and professed it. It is the deliberate and defined Denying of Jesus' person, you've trampled the Son of God underfoot. Denying Jesus' work, treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant. And then denying the Spirit's work, insulted the Spirit of grace. I think it's very much related to the text about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come or what John calls the sin that leads to death, 1 John 5. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he'll ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
It is the warning, my friend, to stand this close to holy things, to know that the gospel is about the Son of God who lived and died for sinners, to say at one point you affirm that, and then to turn around and not only walk away, but to walk away and say that is a lie, it's not true, it is worthless, it is useless. That, my friend, is to invite a judgment that you do not want to face. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who commit such sin have heard the truth, could repeat the truth, have at one time acknowledged the truth, have been identified with the truth, and they've rejected it all and treated it with contempt. This isn't mere backsliding. This is someone who rejects and repudiates the gospel. There is no sacrifice for sins left. What happens to them? Well, how much worse punishment? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. This is eternal destruction. I know some of you are saying, how does that help with my confidence? How does this aid me in following the Lord? My friend, along with the encouragement, what you should do, there needs to be the warning. Here's what happens if you will not. You see, there's not only actions of a confident faith, and warning is about a failing faith. Finally, there's encouragement for an enduring faith. Verses 32 to 39. Now, we've all heard the good news, bad news stories, right? The little ditties, the good news is this, the bad. The good news is there's golf courses in heaven. The bad news is you have a tea time tomorrow morning. Um, well, maybe that wasn't the best. I, author of Hebrews reverses it. He says, he gives us the bad news, now he gives us the good news. The verses we just examined were discipline, or what the early church father Chrysostom would have called surgery. The verses now are comfort. Some of the most encouraging words in Scripture. First, remember your former faithfulness. The memory of faithfulness. When you first believed, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. My friend, new converts can stand. I think about the Thessalonian Christians. One of the first letters Paul writes is to the Thessalonians. And he was only there a short time, and he had to get out because of the persecution had gotten so hot. And he writes to them a letter encouraging them to stand, and apparently they did. When insulted and persecuted, they stood. And he goes on to describe here, the author does, of what all they had endured. They had been insulted and persecuted. Uh, the hard struggle, verse 33, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. This care for those who were persecuted. Standing with prisoners was risky action in the day. Remember, there was no such thing as a bill of rights within the Roman Empire. There was no such thing as a guarantee of counsel. There was no such thing as innocent until proven guilty. And when you entered the prison system, the only way that you lived is if you had somebody that cared enough to bring you food and water. Otherwise, you could sit in prison and die. But here was the problem. If somebody's accused of a crime and you're the one who brings them food and water, guess what? Maybe you are in cahoots. The early Christians would often find themselves persecuted because they cared for believers who were in prison. 
This is why Jesus will say in Matthew 25, I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick, you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. They had endured their property being taken, the seizure of their goods. And how could they do that joyfully? They knew they had a better possession, an eternal one. Don't throw away your confidence. You have a great reward. The English reformer, Hugh Latimer, on one occasion, before he was eventually arrested and executed, he was to preach a sermon before Henry VII, and he did. And King Henry took offense. And so Latimer was commanded to preach the following weekend and make an apology. And so on the following Sunday, Latimer stood before the king, and after he read the text, he addressed himself as he began to preach. And here's what he said. Hugh Latimer, dost thou not know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, Dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all-present, and who beholds all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell? Therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. He then proceeded to preach to Henry the same sermon he'd preached the week before, only with more vigor. How? He knew he had a greater inheritance. In the 16th century, when John Hooper was despoiled of his worldly possessions and facing a cruel death, he writes from prison these words, loss of goods is great, the loss of God's grace and favor is greater. And further, that there is neither felicity nor adversity of this world that can appear to be great if it's weighed with the joys or pains in the world to come. See, my friend, if you're anchored in this certainty, this world is not my home. This isn't final. You hold it loosely, and then you respond faithfully. The reward of faith, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, verse 35. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Sounds a lot like Paul in 2 Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And there's a righteousness that is yours through faith. The quotation here from the Old Testament, from the book of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. He's giving them an encouragement here. We are not of those, look at the final verse, there's verse 39, of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Confidence. No matter what happens, confidence. Persecuted, confidence. 
lose things, confidence. Friends arrested, confidence. Some of you may remember, old enough to remember, the high-wire aerialists. They called themselves the Flying Valendas. Remember that? The tragic end of Carl Valenda in 1978. He fell 75 feet to his death in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. His wife recalled later, all Carl thought about for three straight months prior to this walk was falling. It was the first time he'd ever thought about that. And it seemed to me he put all his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope. Now, I'm not going to comment about what has to go wrong in your head to do things like that. As a career. But folks, can I encourage you in something? While there's a warning here about falling, do you notice that most of the text is not about the warning about falling, it is about the encouragement of standing. See, it's never enough, is it, (laughs) to be warned. Not all the time. Now, some warnings, they'll, they'll stick. And if you know that there's danger, you'll pay attention. Somebody warns you, my dog will bite you. Do not bother him. Don't be stupid, right? Leave the dog alone. Go visit somebody else's farm, stay in this pasture. You can get the hay out of here. Don't go in that pasture. There's a bull over there, and he would just love to kill you. You stay out of the pasture. My friend, what motivates us ought to be the joy of what we are granted here. It ought to be the confidence of these wondrous realities. Let me me close it this way. And I say this because I think we far too often, we, we think purely, we're so selfish, it's all about us. And, and I want you to think rightly about yourself and rightly about how you deal with others and know that there's nothing in your life wasted. I, a gentleman named Boris Kornfeld was a Russian Jew who was also a communist and he was a physician. And he, like thousands and thousands of others, found himself arrested during one of Stalin's purges. In the gulag, that's the Russian name for the prison, the gulag. Lo and behold, he became disillusioned with both socialism and the state. And of all things, this Russian Jew who was a communist converted to Christianity through the witness of an imprisoned Christian. It changed his life and it changed his outlook. Well, being a physician, they had him working in the dispensary, the clinic, and the gulag. And like most of these institutions, there was a lot of graft and corruption. And Boris noticed an orderly who was living, just causing all sorts of havoc and grief. And so he turned him in. And he knew the minute he did it, his life was forfeit. (sighs) 
In caring for a young patient who had just had cancer surgery, he told him about his whole life. He just rehearsed all that had happened. And that very night, Boris Kornfeld was murdered. The young man, the patient, came to saving faith. And his name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And if you don't know that name, you ought to look it up. A man who had as much effect privately as anybody ever did, I believe, to the fall of communism. My friend, we live this life in a world that is hostile in so many ways, among a people who do not understand us, and in fact, many ways, loathe us. And yet you and I are called to live confidently. A gloriously confident faith because of the greatness of our promise-keeping God. And may, in this coming year, this be the way we live. May you grant it. Let's pray.